What a love, what a cost. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your son and his sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, as we hear from your word now, would you speak to us by the power of your spirit? And Lord, whatever is said, um, even as there are heavier things to say, we pray that this truth would overshadow all of that, that Christ took our blame and bore our wrath so we can stand forgiven at the cross. May that truth resonate in our hearts now, in Jesus' name, amen. How many of us claim to believe in God, yet live like he's uninvolved, like we're practical deists? If what we think about God is the most important thing about us, to paraphrase A.W. Tozer, then what does that do to us if we think that God is up in heaven, just lounging around, indifferent? to what's going on in our world, complacent about our plight. If we even subconsciously feel that God is complacent, I believe that will also make us complacent, at least when it comes to the things of the Lord. If he doesn't really care, then why should we? We're going to look at a passage, though, today from God's Word that promises us otherwise. It promises us that God is not indifferent, that he's not complacent, and that he will show both justice and mercy in this world. We'll have to decide whether or not we believe the Lord is telling the truth. I hope you will believe him. Please open up a Bible with me to Zephaniah 1. Zephaniah 1. As we opened up Zephaniah last week, we heard God declare that he will judge the whole world. And we saw that this judgment of his is both inevitable and it's understandable. And in verse 2, we saw God said, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Zephaniah was especially preaching to the people of Judah here in the 7th century before Christ, though he alternates between small-scale local judgment and large-scale global judgment. Just as we saw last week, he first talks about sweeping away everything up for judicial review, and then he specifically talks about what God would do in Judah and Jerusalem. And we see in verse 4, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on their roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So that's what we saw last week. Now, we're going to hear Zephaniah's own voice in verse 7 when he says very solemnly, be silent before the Lord, before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Be silent before the Lord God, 
for the day of the Lord is near. We may at times doubt it. We may have questions about it. We may scoff at it. But the main message we're going to see as we continue forward, very simply, is that the Lord will have his day. The Lord will have his day. The day of the Lord is a common concept in the Bible, and it's the outright theme of Zephaniah. He mentions it at least 17 times in today's passage alone. But just what is this day of the Lord? It's not often understood very well. The prophets in Scripture sometimes use the term to describe a day in their near future, and other times they used it to describe a day much, much farther in the future. It was kind of like God gave the prophets a set of binoculars. God would point out something to them, and they would pull up the binoculars, look at it, and they would look at it through them, and it would appear near to them. And sometimes it was. And then they look at the same thing with the naked eye, and it seemed distant. Where the analogy breaks down is that they were often actually seeing distinct events, near and far. The day of the Lord is one of those. The day of the Lord is really a, a recurring event with multiple instances, past, present, and future. Scripture describes various moments that happened in the past as the days of the Lord. And these were days that when, when the Lord especially intruded into space and time in order to, to express his sovereignty or lordship, to establish a covenant, or to enforce a covenant. Here in Zephaniah, God's looming judgment of Judah would be one such day when he would intrude and then he would enforce a covenant. There's also a sense in which the day of the Lord is a present tense thing for us right now. The New Testament talks about how Christ's death and resurrection inaugurated the day of the Lord. So in some ways, this day has already come and we have some of its blessings now. But even then, the, when we read Scripture, we read of the day of the Lord, the, the cosmic upheaval and the utter finality of the day clearly hasn't come yet. Thus, God's word anticipates an ultimate future day when Christ returns once for all, establishing justice, punishing wickedness, rewarding faithfulness, and renewing creation. One scholar says the day of the Lord is essentially the day that God comes. The day that God comes. It's any day, he says, that the Lord approaches his people with either judgment and or salvation. This is how God's revelation at Sinai and God's judgment through the Babylonian exile and Christ's death at Calvary and the start of the church at Pentecost and Christ's still-to-come return can all be called the day of the Lord. When God comes, the day of the Lord is whenever the Lord takes center stage and steals the show. It's his day. Now, just as there are multiple time frames to the day of the Lord, there are multiple facets of the day. We see that it is a day both of judgment and a day of blessing, a day of wrath and a day of hope, a day of both vengeance and 
and vindication, a day of supernatural power and salvation. It's a day that's going to get really dark, and yet it will also be the dawn of the greatest light. Now, that's a a long explanation. But understanding the day of the Lord is crucial to understanding the book of Zephaniah. It had immediate application in Zephaniah's day, yet it still carries immense relevance even right now. So now we can return to our text and ask, okay, what should we do about this day of the Lord? Well, we can start by shutting up. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. It's quiet now. Hush! Imagine entering a courtroom and hearing, All rise! The honorable judge, the Lord God presiding. And then you catch a glimpse of the Lord entering the room. just takes your breath away. The only right response is to stand in silence in his presence. Notice here in the the name given for God that God is in all caps and the Lord is not. And usually it's the Lord, right? So Zephaniah is, the, the, the all caps name he uses is still Yahweh, but Lord or Adonai is added to emphasize his sovereignty or his lordship. So Zephaniah is literally saying, the Lord Yahweh, stand in hushed awe of him. And his day is coming soon. It's imminent. Stop chattering away and pay attention. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, he says, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. So Zephaniah first focuses on Judah here. And he says that the day is near when God is going to make a sacrifice. This reminds us first that that God's wrath can be appeased only through death of a sinner or a sacrifice, a substitute in their place. Here, God was basically, he says, throwing a dinner party. He's making a meal. He's inviting guests. However, when you realize what's really being suggested here, it's rather shocking. Because the sacrifice turns out to be his people in Judah. And the consecrated or set-aside guests were their conquerors from Babylon. Alternatively, the, the guests could refer to carrion birds or beasts invited to eat flesh. Either way, it's pretty horrific. The Lord's judgment will be holy, but it will not be pretty. This was brutally played out in the real history of Judah when they were invaded and exiled. But we believe that that was only a foretaste of God's ultimate judgment that will come one day at the hand of none other than gentle King Jesus. If you don't believe me, read Revelation 19. There's a lot of parallels between that chapter and this here. 
My question is, do we believe, do we really believe that such a day is coming? Because most people around us don't believe a day like this could ever happen. So do we believe that this could happen? I mean, people do worry that there may be an apocalypse of some kind one day, whether it's caused by the climate or nuclear war or a pandemic or aliens or zombies. Like Our films and our books clearly expose these fears that many people live with. But then our films and books also show that we think these apocalypses can be overcome or survived or prevented altogether by brilliant scientists or superior technology or a team of superheroes or what have you. But book it. There will be no stopping the day of the Lord. No preventing it. He will have his day. It's coming. Glance down at verse 14. It says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. Like, hear the decree here. The Lord says, I will do this. And I challenge, I, I urge you to take him at his word. It's, it was near and hastening fast in Zephaniah's day, and it's near and hastening fast even now. We wonder, though, why would God judge his people like this? How could he do such a thing? Zephaniah doesn't leave us wondering. He makes it clear that Judah justly had this coming. And the same goes for our world today. That the Lord will have his day, and it is well deserved. The Lord having his day and people being judged on it is well deserved. We saw last week people's idolatry, their syncretism, their apostasy being exposed in verses 4 to 6. And we start to see this again there in verse 8 where it says, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons, all who array themselves in foreign attire. Now, we read about Manasseh and Ammon's spiritual corruption in Judah recently. Josiah, a godly king, was presently on the throne, but we know his, king, his sons would still be wretched. So Zephaniah prophesied about their coming downfall. He says, I will punish the officials and the king's sons. But the gist of the issue that we've seen here is that the leaders of God's people, their priests and their kings, those who are supposed to be protecting them and leading them in right worship and setting a godly example, had completely dropped the ball and done the direct opposite of their duties. I will punish the officials and the king's sons, all who array themselves in foreign attire. Now, arraying themselves in foreign attire wasn't just dressing up in culturally exotic clothes. This is most likely talking about clothes that were used in pagan religious practices and services. So these were, the pe these were people, perhaps priests even, who were outwardly identifying with false worship. It's a similar thing with a rather strange picture we're given in verse 9. It says, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. We go, huh? Are you familiar with the story of when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant 
from 1 Samuel 5. The Philistines captured the ark in battle, and they, they put the ark in the temple of their god, Dagon. But during the night, the statue of Dagon fell down as if it were bowing down to the ark of the covenant. That was weird, so the next morning they set the statue back up. But then the next morning, the idol had fallen down again. But this time, the hands and head of the statue broke off and were lying on the temple's threshold, like the doorway of the temple. So the Philistines freak out a bit. They decide they got to return the ark before it gets even worse. But 1 Samuel 5.5 tells us that a superstition arose out of that situation as the priests of Dagon refused to step on their temple's threshold ever again. They avoided it. They would leap over it. So what we have here in Zephaniah seems to be the importing of pagan practices into Judah. Apparently, the superstition spread, and God's people were now leaping over thresholds. They were approaching God the same way their enemies did. They're corrupting the pure worship in the temple. It also says they were filling the temple with violence and fraud in verse 9. So even the most holy places around were not immune to the rampant injustice of the land. And, and how ironically inconsistent. Okay? They were, while they were gingerly stepping over the temple's threshold, carefully following this senseless pagan tradition, they took no such care in avoiding violence or deceit there in the temple. Surely God's justice was deserved. Then look down at verse 12. It says, At that time, God says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Now, this is perhaps the most convicting verse for, our, for us today. Because yes, we have our own idols. And we've got plenty of ways we corrupt our worship by identifying with evil or believing secular superstitions or by being violent or fraudulent. But it's much easier to see how we've become complacent. Apathetic. Lazy or indifferent. That's right in front of our eyes. Here, God says he will take lights or lamps into the darkest corners of Jerusalem, every nook and cranny, in order to root out every last trace of complacency. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Now, the Hebrew term used for complacent literally reads, those who are thickening on the dregs. Now, for any of you who had a cup of coffee today, did you drink the whole cup? Like, not just the liquid, but also the, the sludge or the sediment at the bottom. Those are the dregs. All right? I'm not a coffee guy myself. Same thing happens with my hot chocolates or with a tea. Or in their day, this was talking about wine. 
Like leave wine sitting and its dregs can thicken to near solid globs at the bottom of the glass. If you don't stir your drink or you don't swish your drink, the longer it sits, the thicker the dregs. And that's the picture Zephaniah uses here to describe people who were complacent toward the Lord. Like they felt so settled and secure, they kind of floated down to the bottom of life, spiritually speaking. They were stagnant in spirit, not good for much of anything anymore. Easy going to the point of sin. They were sitting out seeking the Lord, amusing themselves and taking it easy. As I heard someone say, it's it's not nice to drink the dregs, it's even worse to be the dregs. But does this not sound eerily like North American Christianity? To put it a bit harshly, we grow spiritually fat, lazy, and useless in our inactivity, apathy, and self-indulgence. Subscribing to every streaming service and signing up for every social network we can, playing games nonstop, entertaining, amusing, and scrolling ourselves to death. Am I wrong? G.A. Smith says, The great causes of God and humanity are not defeated by the hot assaults of the devil, but by the slow, crushing, glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of indifferent nobodies. God's causes are never destroyed by being blown up, but by being sat upon. But like I said earlier, This complacency often stems from wrong thinking about the Lord, like it did here. It says, these are the men who will say, the Lord, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They think God's not going to do anything for or to them. You ever thought that way? Feeling like God is just missing an action in your life? Doesn't matter what good you do. And God won't do anything to help you if you're righteous. Or, doesn't matter what bad you do. God won't do anything to hinder or stop the wicked. We might not say these things out loud. But we do buy into them. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. So why obey his commands? Like They aren't that easy. Or why, like, for example, why put so much effort into growing in my faith? Why go to small group when I'd rather stay home watching shows? Why get godly counseling if it's going to be painful? Like, things are never going to get better anyway. God can't help me. God raised Jesus from the dead. He really can't help us? Or we might think, why spend precious time praying? What good does that do? Why make a habit of reading the word? I don't seem to get anything out of it. 
Is any of this really going to help improve my marriage, get my kids or grandkids on the right track, give me a, a spouse or kids in the first place, heal my chronic pain, get me a promotion or raise, help me pay the bills, help me pass a class? We can go on. Kevin DeYoung might take the words right out of some of our mouths when he asks, facetiously here, why walk the hard, narrow path when the Lord doesn't seem to do anything better for me than all the yahoos out there on the broad, easy path? The Lord will not do good. We may also think that the Lord won't do anything we deem negative either. Nor will he do ill. God is a God of love and mercy. He wouldn't punish people, especially for little sins. And if God won't judge evil, then really, we can live however we want. We aren't afraid of what might happen if we keep dabbling with secret or hidden sins, habitual sins. We think the, the worst that could happen is we get a little embarrassed if we get caught. But God won't discipline me, or worse, punish me. We scoff at the idea we, when we hear that those who take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner may get sick or even die. Nah. We assume that there's no harm in neglecting spiritual disciplines in our daily priorities. Or from another angle, when we suffer, we somehow think that God would never send trials to people he loves. So we begin to doubt his goodness or his power to work through our trials. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. If we truly believe this, we might as well be atheists. Because we're living like them. So stop whispering these lies in your heart. God knows, and he will find us out. Don't ever forget the countless ways that God has already done you good. And don't lose sight of the many ways that God has already shown his just judgment on sin. And may these two things together stir up a grace-fueled striving for repentance, holiness, and godliness in our lives. I could go on about how deserving we are of the judgment side of the day of the Lord. Just very quickly, verse 10 and 11 seem to say that there was economic injustice going on in the marketplace Verse 17 says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. So we see that God is the most aggrieved party when we sin. We sin against him. Verse 18 implies that when people trust their wealth to save them, it provokes God's jealousy. And verse 1 of chapter 2 says that Judah had become a shameless nation hardened, blinded. They were oblivious to their obvious guilt. They weren't even sorry at all. And I pray that we would never become like this.
Our culture is already there. But whether or not we're living like it will happen, the Lord will have his day. And it's well-deserved. God deserves all our devotion and our worship. And those who refuse to honor him will deserve all his judgment. But not only is the day of the Lord well-deserved, something else comes through here, that it's going to be devastating. The day of the Lord will be devastating in its scope. Look at verse 10 and 11. It says, On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. This is a, a really sad scene. Like we're meant to hear the cries of sorrow or panic, the sounds of extreme despair or the crashes of destruction resounding across Jerusalem. You might wonder, well, what's wrong with the traitors or the merchants mentioned in verse 11? We don't know. It was likely dishonest practices, economic sins, misconduct. And before we judge them, remember that we live in one of the richest eras and cultures in history. And that that leads many of us to live for things that rust, fade, and end up in the garbage. The affluence of these people must have surely played into their complacency in verse 12. And their sin would ultimately lead to their wealth being devastated. Verse 13 says, Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. This describes a direct reversal of the covenant blessings of the promised land. Deuteronomy 6 had said this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Judah had forgotten the Lord, and now their blessings from the Lord would be lost. They'd become just like the nations, so they'd be treated just like the nations in judgment. And beware, if we put our trust in our earthly wealth today and and bank our security and status or satisfaction on them, we too will be devastated one day because they cannot fulfill us. You may lose them in life, you will definitely lose them in death. And if you're prone to underestimate how devastating God's judgment will be, read from verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Here's Zephaniah just 
rapid-firing, literal doom and gloom. After that, you might hear verse 14 say, the great day of the Lord, and think that doesn't sound so great. But that's not, calling, that's not saying it's great as in wonderful. It's great in significance and scope. Just go quickly through this list of frightful characteristics of that day. The day of the Lord will sound terrible, echoing with sounds of warfare and destruction. Even mighty heroes are going to be crying out in defeat and despair. Cities will be smashed, crumbling. Even the day of the Lord will give vent to the Lord's wrath. It says it's a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, which will then lead to catastrophic distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, like these verses were clearly meant to strike terror in the hearts of Zephaniah's hearers. Not for sheer terror's sake. And not to just torture them with nightmarish predictions. But to alarm them out of their corruption and complacency so that they would turn back to the Lord before it was too late. One Neat little detail here is that day is repeated six times in verses 15 and 16, possibly echoing the six days of creation. So as David Baker explains, man's sin leads to God's punishment, which in effect brings creation full circle to where it was before God actively formed the universe. Light gives way to darkness, and the order of the well-established creation reverts to disorder. God's sovereign benevolence in, his good, or benevolence in his good provisions is replaced by judgment and his blessings are withheld. It seems as though Zephaniah is foreseeing the ultimate global day of the Lord again here. Like this is unprecedented universal devastation. Look at verse 17 and 18. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So if we think our wealth or our achievements will get us out of our mess, Forget it. Money can sometimes give us happiness or comfort or status now, but it won't give us any of these things in the end. Only God can. And again, verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It's near and hastening fast. It's rapidly getting closer. Yes, we live in dark days now, no doubt. But there is a dark day that will end all of our dark days. Not only will its darkness be greater than all the darkness we experience now, but it will literally put an end to the darkness of this world once and for all. And that's actually good news, believe it or not. You may think, Pastor Matt, I'm just not comfortable with a God like this. And I would ask, whoever told you that you should be comfortable with God? Worship him. Revere him. 
love him, fear him, serve him, seek him, call upon him. And he does graciously and, and gently bid us to come to him 100%, but don't ever think you can treat him lightly or trifle with him. And yes, he's good. He's not safe. God is holy and totally above us. And it only makes sense that he would unsettle us at times. And ask yourself, would you rather serve a God who never judges evil? Would you rather have a weak or impotent God at the reins of the universe? Would you rather have an unholy, unrighteous God laying down the law? I seriously doubt it. As Ian Duguid reminds us, there is an impulse deep within every human heart that resonates with the prophet's concern. Whether or not we believe in the God of the Bible, we are all faced with the fact that in this tragic world, there is much unpunished evil that cries out for a just reckoning. Though people in our society may disagree about what exactly should be counted as evil, there is broad agreement that certain evils are deplorable. Moreover, almost everyone agrees that when a serious evil has been committed, someone ought to pay for it. On some level, we all want to see the day when justice will finally be done, when the evil and wicked finally receive their due punishment. So don't hear all this today and freak out. Hear all this today and soberly thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that He is a God of righteousness justice, love, and mercy, all of the above. That's who our God is. Now, if we stop here at the end of chapter 1, the message would be pretty much total despair. <laughs> no deliverance or salvation is mentioned. It's only darkness and devastation and nothing we can do about it. But, Zephaniah begins chapter 2 with an absolutely necessary word telling us what we can do, what we must do, really. So, if the emergency alert of chapter 1 has you alarmed, then listen very carefully to what Zephaniah says next. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So, just think back through the flow of this whole passage. Okay, Zephaniah implies that no, your political or religious leaders, kings, priests, their equivalents today, cannot save you from God's judgment. Your economic and financial status won't be able to deliver, you, to deliver you from his wrath. Your goods, your houses, your food, your drink 
can't save you from his great day. Your strong cities, your proud nations, your powerful militaries, your heroes will not be able to deliver you from God. Neither will all your own strength, your health, your wealth, like all the things we tend to rely on for security and significance cannot save us. So what can save us on the great day of the Lord? Only one thing. The Lord himself. The point? We may be delivered on his day by humbly seeking him now. The Lord will have his day, but we may be delivered on his day by humbly seeking him now. Either the storyline of the Bible is that God loves you exactly like you are and there's nothing wrong with you and you just need to learn to accept God's unconditional acceptance of you. Or, it's that we've sinned greatly against a holy God who must punish sin. And yet God does love us so much so that he sent his only son to die in our place. Under his wrath, we can be forgiven, but we must repent of our sins and turn wholeheartedly to Christ. Only then can we experience the fullness of God's love and his gracious acceptance. Which story is true? What about you? Are you ready to confess your sins and commit to the Lord today? If so, you're in a good place the very place God wants you to be, I believe. Gather together, yes, gather together, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, before, 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 before. Today is not too late to turn to him. Tomorrow may be. Time is short, passing away like dust blowing away. So act now before it's too late. Zephaniah uses a farming picture when he tells people to gather themselves together. It was a term specifically used for collecting stubble or straw or sticks to build a fire. However, Scholars think the imagery here is creatively used in a positive sense to say that as people gathered grain after separating it from the chaff, they were to gather themselves, to, to bundle themselves together in unity before the Lord, separating themselves from everything that was destined for God's wrath. There was a way to, to separate from that. In other words, they were to come together together to seek the Lord. 
Seek the Lord, verse 3. All you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. If they were humble enough to hear the warning of the Lord against their sin, if they were faithful enough to continue following his ways, even in dark days, then they should band together to go after the Lord with all their heart. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. They may have already been relatively humble or righteous, but there was more to learn. They were urged to keep pursuing righteousness, to keep learning true humility. There's always room for all of us to grow. We are are not going to arrive on this side of glory. So I ask you, are you seeking the Lord during these dark days? What are you doing to to prioritize, to pursue Him? What might need to change in your life? And are we doing this together? Banding together, growing together, seeking the Lord together. Now, to be clear, your own humility and righteousness won't ever be enough to save you. But once you seek the Lord and find him in Jesus, his humility and righteousness will be more than enough. His death and in your place, his victorious resurrection over sin and death will be enough to save you from your idolatry or your apathy or your shame or your shamelessness. The terrible darkness described here in Zephaniah is a dim reflection of the darkness that Jesus went through on the cross, on the day of the Lord then. He can now be our hideaway. We can hide ourselves in him because there was no refuge to hide him on that day. So have you died with Christ, and had your life hidden with him. Then don't despair and shame today. Focus again on Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. None of God's wrath remains for you to bear. Because Jesus drained that cup to the dregs. And hush before the awesomeness of God and his judgments. And realize that the thunder of his judgment has been hushed for you by Christ. Rest in that. The day of the Lord will be terrible for all except those who find refuge in the Lord beforehand. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. That perhaps might not sound overly comforting. It's a muted hope here. But it was a glimmer of hope nonetheless. In the midst of all the darkness, hang on to it. Besides, we have way more than just a glimmer of hope now. Hebrews 6 tells us that we who have fled for refuge to God 
have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So our hope is sure in Christ. Zephaniah gives us no hope that the day of the Lord will be prevented or thwarted. After all, it won't be. The whole world will be overturned. It will be renewed as through a furnace. Even God's people will experience his purifying work on us, perhaps even in severe trials. We may yet suffer temporarily alongside the wicked on this earth. And thus, the perhaps of Zephaniah still speaks today with realism. It's true. But ultimately, none of the Lord's true people will be lost. The meek will inherit the earth. The Lord will have his day, and the Lord will have his way. And his way is to save sinners. So seek him with all your heart, and you will be hid on the day he appears. As a final exhortation, let me allow, allow me to close by reading from 1 Thessalonians 5 which talks about how we should be responding now to the coming day of the Lord. It says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So be encouraged and built up and go living in the light, children of the day. God, please... Awaken our souls to these realities and help us to believe them. Help us to live in light of them today, now. Now is the day of salvation. God, we praise you again for Christ, who is our only hope. May we rest in that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.